Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today it's me, Jeff, and I'm here with Aaron and Greg. And today we're going to be talking about several topics that are trending in the mountain bike world this week and this month. First off, we're going to talk about an article that John shared with us a couple weeks ago titled 10 Bikes for 10 Trails, where he talked about 10 different mountain bikes that he's tested and sort of imagined which trails those bikes would be best suited for. So I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about that idea and see what do you guys think about that? Are there certain bikes that work well for certain trails? Are the or does it go the other way around? Do people design the bikes to fit specific trails? What's what's your experience been with that? I think both of those things, definitely. Um, personally, in my experience, like I see lots of bikes having like an ideal use case where there's one specific type of riding or one specific type of trail that they might just be like the best at. Um, so what's impressive to me is like that John, you know, on these like outer bike test loops, you know, got such a feel for a bike on that one test loop that he was like, oh, I'm riding this bike in Moab, but it would be great in Minnesota, for instance. You know, while for me, like, I have a harder time picking up on those nuances in like a five-mile ride. So I think like long-term reviews of bikes are still king. So if you can take a bike, test it on a bunch of different terrain, I think at the end of the test, you're like, I think this bike did the best at this specific type of riding in this specific type of terrain. Um, but at the same time, I do think, you know, so the bikes can be particularly suited for a type of terrain that could be because the company designed it for a specific type of terrain too. Um, I totally got that feel riding the Santa Cruz Bronson on the local Santa Cruz trails with guys from Santa Cruz, you know, like I was like, oh, this is like all jiving right now. Like the way this bike is set up, you know, the way the geometry is, the suspension is the design, like it's just totally digging into these trails and just absolutely perfect whereas on some other terrain you know i wasn't particularly you know totally as stoked but on like the local terrain it was just just spot on you know so i think there's definitely local trail influences too so you can look at the coin from both sides i think so maybe the idea you know from like people that like to eat local and shop local maybe there's some validity to that even when you buy your mountain bike you know if there's a company in your region or your area that makes bikes um, then chances are that they're designing bikes that will work well for your local trails yeah that's a pretty good assumption i mean even take you know rocky mountain bikes out of vancouver they have bc editions of their mountain bikes and granted the aggressive bc editions you know are going to work an aggressive terrain in a lot of places but it's called the BC edition, you know, I mean, British Columbia. So, you know, there's, I would say there's something to that. Um, but I think you'll naturally sort of see regional influences of brands too, partially because especially with some of the smaller, um, more niche brands will have like not as wide of a distribution as say Trek bicycles. So in Colorado, you see a lot of Yetis because 
Yeti is based here in Colorado. You know, out on the West Coast, you see a lot of Santa Cruz's and maybe more Ibises. And a lot of these small brands do have their regional influences, partially because of their dealer network. But um, I'm with you. I think part of it could be the design, too. Yeah. Well, and that reminds me, too, that a lot of the big companies like Specialized have testing areas and groups that are spread all over the country. So I know Specialized is has a few people in Colorado Springs, for example. So they're, you know, designing bikes and testing bikes in multiple areas so that perhaps so they don't get that sort of regional influence just based on where their headquarters is. Yeah, and I think like most brands would argue probably against what we're saying that there is like regional influence on their bike designs. Um, but, you know... I would disagree, maybe to an extent. But so it's. it's not, I don't. I don't. I think a lot of companies embrace their. I mean, Yeti for sure. They mm-hmm. they're proud of the fact that they're a Colorado company, and they. I mean, they say in their marketing that they design the bikes for the trails that they ride. So you know, they're right by. They're in Golden, Colorado. They're right next to the Apex Trail, which has got some steep climbing and some chunky downhills. So they need a bike that can do both. A bike that can climb technical ascents you know really well and then a bike that can turn around and rip downhill so i think a lot of companies embrace that and like you said with you know rocky mountain having the bc edition and even norco um you know you can see you know norco is based in bc as well and you can see that influence across their range not just on their their trail bikes but even their xc bikes are um you know skew more traily than maybe some other companies so I, I think a lot of companies embrace that and you know for good reason like you said i mean that's it's one way to differentiate themselves and it's one way to connect with a consumer you know like like just said if you if you know you live in colorado and these are the trails you ride and yeti's right there then you know your yeti maybe makes more sense to you so i think i think more often than not companies are going to embrace that i mean maybe the biggest ones you know maybe specialized and and trek try to be a little more broad with their appeal but you know everybody's got to fit in somewhere so i think you that's why you see like nolly for instance you know they're a small brand and um they build burly trail bikes because they're in the land of burly trails so i would i would disagree with you a little bit there greg Okay, I think I think you've got a good point with the smaller companies, you know. So like Yeti, you're totally r- right on with that. Um, when I was talking with Santa Cruz, when I was out in Santa Cruz, they were sort of, you know, hesitant to claim like their bikes were built for Santa Cruz, but they're a company that's you know aiming to be way more international in scope than Yeti is. You know, they've got much bigger distribution than Yeti. So I think you may have hit on a really good nuance, like the smaller companies versus the ones that are really trying to have a international distributorship. Yeah. So obviously not everyone can afford to buy or even borrow a different bike for every trail and every region of the country where they ride. So what are a few, you know, easy things that people could tweak about their bikes to fit local trails and local conditions? One of the easiest ways, um, and I've said this before is, uh, tires, Swapping out your tires for your particular trails can make a make a huge difference. Um, you know, even even if that means changing your tires, you know, based on the conditions, maybe you go with something knobbier for the winter months, and then something a little faster rolling for the summer. But that can make a make a huge impact on your ride. 
depending on exactly what terrain you're riding, there can be a few different things that to take into effect. Um, I would look at you know the locals' bikes and see what they're riding. So, for instance, in some places that have like just extremely ledgy rock terrain with like high ledges, I mean everybody's going to be running a bash guard and it's going to have some sort of protection there. Um, terrain that doesn't have that, you're not likely to see that as much. But I think if you, you look at like what the locals are running, sort of see trends. Um, you know, that emerge from their bikes. So that's what I would do, you know, more than just like looking at a few things, like look what everybody else is doing and be like, Hmm, is there a reason behind why they're doing it? You know? Yeah. And we talked on a recent episode about single speed bikes and how some trails are better suited to that than others. So gearing is definitely something that I would recommend people consider um, for the local trails they ride. And then the other thing I just thought of was bars, bar widths, you know, yeah, people are, <laughs> people are always so excited about like wider, wider, wider. And it's like, I get that, but it kind of is not good here where we live, where there's a lot of trees <laughs> and it's hard to get around. I think wide bars are awesome if you're riding at the bike park where trails are super wide and, you know, you got good sight lines, but out here in the East, wide bars are not so good. Well, I, I think, um, at least for our, you know, kind of in-town trails that we ride a lot, there are definitely s- some really tight squeezes where you, there's some trails around here where you actually have to wheelie and turn your bars so you can make it through because it's such a tight squeeze. I know uh, I typically run like a 760 bar or wider, and seven, 760 I can still keep a pretty good pace through most of the in-town trails, but once I get wider than that, I you know, really have to slow down and pick my way through stuff. And I actually got a big chunk out of my uh, pinky missing because I, I smashed it up against a tree riding last <laughs> week. So that's, I definitely had bar width on there. Um, suspension as well. That's something that, especially if you have, you know, you're running air suspension, which most people are, that's something you can do to change for your uh, particular trail that you're riding. So if you're riding something, that's a little bit smoother you can add some more air pressure to your fork and to your shock and that'll firm things up and make it pedal a little bit better uh if you're doing the opposite of that maybe riding really technical stuff kind of slow speed or uh you know steep you can soften up your suspension so it'll you know provide you with better traction so that's a that's a really easy way i mean all you need to do with that is you know all you need is a shock pump there there's definitely things you can easily do to to customize your bike for your particular trail. Right on. Switching gears a little bit. Recently, Greg wrote an article about uh, the identity crisis that mountain bikers are facing right now. Um, And real briefly, the idea is that there are kind of two sides to mountain biking. There's the side that you see in videos where people are shrouping berms and, you know, doing things that seem sort of destructive to trails and seem like they're really adrenaline fueled. And then there's the other side, the side that, you know, we want to present as responsible trail users, which is of mountain bikers riding responsibly and being able to share trails with people in wilderness areas and places like that. So we had a lot of good comments and discussion with that. Um, and, And in Greg's article, Greg didn't really... Greg purposely did not offer any solutions. Um, it was more about sort of starting a conversation. So, you know, we read through all the comments and everything. And one of the 
ideas or criticisms that came up was that single tracks is a part of the problem um, in terms of sharing these videos of people doing things that maybe aren't the most responsible things. Um, and that's definitely something we're aware of. It's something Greg addressed. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem where there's demand for these videos, but then there's also uh, supply of the videos. So I wanted to see if you guys had anything to add sort of to this discussion about, um, about mountain biking's identity crisis and perhaps if there are any solutions to our problem. Yeah, I'm going to jump in and talk a little bit about you know, single tracks and share how we choose to share videos, you know, because like you said, it, it's tough. It's like, there's these videos out there and we share them and maybe everything in the video isn't, you know, on the up and up. But I think the key thing to understand is that because we share a video on single tracks, it doesn't mean that we endorse absolutely everything that you'll see in that video. You know, if it's an otherwise excellent video and there's one stupid skitter berm slash, you know, should that preclude us from sharing it? I honestly don't think so. I don't think we should have to write off the entire video for that one reason. Now, on the other hand, um, you know, we do watch like the videos that we share on single tracks, and sometimes there are individual things in those videos that I veto them for and choose not to share them. Um, one of those is um, excessive vulgarity and gratuitous nudity that's not related to the topic at all or anything else that's demeaning to any group of people, be it an entire gender, an ethnicity, a religion, um, sexual orientation, etc. So one example of that, um, of an extremely popular video that we chose not to share, is the Ashes to Agassiz trailer. While the writing was incredible, like in my opinion, throwing in a scene with naked girls in a hot spring just because to have that sex appeal um, seems totally unnecessary in a mountain biking video and is is not something we condone on single tracks. So despite the fact it was a really popular video, like I vetoed it for that purpose and that's never been shared on our site by us at least. Um, but a berm shop or two, you know, I think that's somewhat on a different level. You know, while maybe sharing a video with a berm shop contributes to our identity crisis a little bit more, I don't think, you know, one skid should preclude a video from being shared on our site. Obviously people enjoy clicking on the videos that are sort of adrenaline fueled and have a lot of brown pal flying through the air. And so people want those and we're gonna share those because in a lot of ways, um, that's kind of how we build our audience. You know, if we're being completely transparent, you know, if we don't show that video and people wanna see it, they're gonna go to a different website. And so our intent, though, is to to have good stewardship over our influence, right? So if we're able to reach a lot of mountain bikers, that also gives us the opportunity to post articles about not riding wet trails and about uh, riding responsibly. I mean, if, if that's all we write about, nobody's going to read single tracks. So in <laughs> some ways, you know, we we have the opportunity to slip that stuff in in between these videos that everybody wants to reach or wants to watch. Greg, you kind of touched on this in your article, but it's, you know, it's the problem of, you know, you sell the sizzle, not the steak, right? <laughs> That's what they teach you in, in uh, business school. So you're, you're not selling the bike. You're selling like the idea of all this cool stuff you could do if you had this bike. 
you know, and the sizzle in mountain biking for better or worse is hucking cliffs and blasting corners. Um, you know, obviously that's not how most of us ride, but that's, that's what gets portrayed in mountain bike marketing as a whole. And you can see the problem with, with the other side of that, with, which is how most of us ride, which is, you know, fairly calmly on mountain bike trails. That's, doesn't make for very interesting or exciting advertising or marketing. But, if, I, you know, this is something that every, almost everything, every product has to deal with. You know, think about, you know, the ad for an ad for a Mustang. You know, millions of people drive Mustangs, but they're not doing donuts at every red light, <laughs> you know, but they do in the commercials. You know, you see an ad for a new truck and what's the truck doing? It's either like blasting through some snowbank or bombing through a mud hole at 50 miles an hour because it's an ad you know they're trying to show like oh yeah like this is this is what your life is going to be like if you get this truck but that's that's advertising and you know that's something people are maybe easier it's easier for other people to distinguish um between you know advertising and reality with some of those other things because you know it's cars everybody drives a car like you know just because the the guy in the ad for your car was doing a donut doesn't mean you are but mountain biking is you know while there's a lot of riders out there it's still a fairly new niche kind of sport so um yeah it's just, it's maybe harder for the general public to separate the the advertising from reality totally agree Aaron and jumping a little bit off of what Jeff said about you know reaching our audience. I think one of the things that we've done a good job of and we continue to do is while you know we do share some of these super rad videos, I think we give equal credence to the other type of mountain biking as well. Like I think we do a good job of sharing, you know, mellow bikepacking videos with amazing scenery or articles about average people riding on standard mountain bike trails and having a great time. And I think part of the way we address, you know, this duality is sort of by embracing it to an extent, but just giving both aspects of it a good amount of weight. If all we posted were the super rad videos, then I think we might have an issue if like we were just about the Red Bull rampage of the sport. But I don't think that's ever been how single tracks has been. You know, we do talk about Rampage and all that goes along with that side of the sport. But we talk about your average everyday trail rider and amazingly beautiful locations as well. Right, for sure. And you sort of touched on it, um, but right, it's, it seems like there isn't a solution. You know, the, the solution doesn't involve one or the other or getting rid of one part of our sport at the expense of the other. So... Greg, you initially had sort of a solution in mind that involved using terminology to distinguish between the different types of writing. Can you talk about that a little bit? As I mentioned a little bit in the article, I said there's like an issue when we call all of these things mountain biking when they're so radically different. And a few commenters even pointed out, you know, if you live in, like, let's say Atlanta, like there aren't any mountains in Atlanta. So are you a mountain biker? Um, (laughs) so, you know, there's, there's that as well, but I think, you know, if we, instead of calling everything mountain biking, when we see it, if we went so far as to use different terms, like all the time, I think over time, 
that could make a difference. You know, that's maybe debatable. But um, I thought, you know, if we called this jumping and backflipping and cliff jumping and all of this free riding, which we already use that term, like, but it's like the sport of free riding. It's not the sport of mountain biking anymore. It's like the sport of free riding. It might take place on a bicycle, but it's sort of its own identity. Uh, and then I considered you know, calling like our classic trail riding, especially in relation to wilderness, backcountry biking, because that brings in sort of all the backcountry you know, ethics that you think of when you think of going out in the wilderness. It brings in you know, leaving no trace, um, respecting other trail users, respecting the environment, the wildlife around you, and you know, the experience of it all. So um, that's just one idea I had of how maybe instead of calling these two different things the same thing, we just we create different terms for like these different entities. Or we could just go back to off-road biking, which is what mountain biking was called in the very early days. But I think that addresses, like you said, in Atlanta, we don't have any backcountry, but we do have places to ride off-road. So yeah, I think that could be, that could be a good solution. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's even trail riding. You know, there's, you know, it's not necessarily the specific term that is like the key. It's just having different terms, almost. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think that's probably an ideal situation, but in reality, I don't think it's a a good solution because, you know, especially if this is intended to somehow change the way the greater public looks at mountain biking, because. If you think about it, we can't even agree, mountain bikers can't even agree amongst themselves what to call, not that it even matters, but, you know, what's a trail bike? What's a trail rider? What's an all-mountain bike? What does it mean if you're an all-mountain rider? What's enduro? Is enduro a type of bike? Is it a race? Is it a ride? Like, you know, there's there's fat biking and there's plus size. So I, I, don't, I don't really think the terminology you know, a change in terminology helps, especially, I mean, we, if, like I said, if we can't agree amongst ourselves, what to call ourselves, then <laughs> no one that's not a mountain biker is going to give, you know, two shits about taking the time to figure it out. Be like, Oh, he wasn't, he wasn't back country riding. He was front country side hill cruising. You know, I, <laughs> I, hate I just, those no, they're the worst, man. I hate those guys. They're always front hill cruising on it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, that's just, uh, I, I think people will start to see the nuances um, in mountain biking as the sport matures, because really it's only still, what, like a 30-ish year old sport. Um, I mean, you think about motorcycles, all the different categories of motorcycles, you still call them motorcycles. You know, you have, you know, the crotch rockets and race bikes, and you've got Harleys, and you've got you know, even on the dirt side, you have people that ride enduro, which is a type of motorcycle. You have people that ride trials. You have people that just ride trails. You have people that ride motocross. Then you have freestyle motocross. So even, I mean, everybody has to deal with this, but I, I don't think we can expect the public at large to to pick up on those nuances. I mean, maybe that's part of the issue. Like, motorcycles are losing access to trails, like, all over the place. Maybe they have the same identity issue that we do, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, either way, it seems like there aren't a lot of solutions that there definitely aren't easy solutions to it. No, what you got to do is you got to be, you know, what was the the Gandhi saying? Be the light that you want to see in the world or something like that. You got to, you know, you got to be the one out there that's not leaving your 
trash on the trail and not riding when it's wet and clearing limbs and just, you know, doing your part, you know, even if, even if nobody else sees you do it, you should do it because it's the right thing to do and, you know, help out at your local trail days, you know, get, get involved. And then once people see that, oh, you know, these guys aren't, you know, chugging Red Bull and backflipping their pickups, you know, like they're, they're going to be much more inclined to listen to what you have to say and, you know, bring you into the process. So get involved people. Yeah. That's a good point that, especially if, if we're talking about hikers or other user groups that might get the wrong impression about mountain bikers, you know, if they see a video, they, ha- that's one data point, but then if they see a person on a trail, that's another, right? So if they see you ride by and you ring your bell and say hello, and you're out of, you know, you're in control, they're going to say, huh, that other thing I saw in the video, like that's really different. But if they see you just blasting by them and, you know, giving them the finger, then that's going to further cement that. So yeah, that's, that's probably one of the better solutions out there. Okay. So it's sea otter time, April, and they're around this big mountain bike event, the consumer trade show. There are a lot of product releases typically. So real quickly, I wanted to talk about some of the things that we can expect from Sea Otter. So SRAM just recently announced their 1x12 drivetrain. And this is obviously an upgrade from 11-speed drivetrains. Uh, the new 1x12 features a range from 10 to 50 teeth on the cogs. Um, and so, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Do you guys have any insight in that, or what do you guys think about the new 1x12? I, I definitely want to try it. I, you know, I've been a huge proponent of single-ring drivetrains for a long time now, and you know, I've run a lot of the SRAM 11-speed stuff, and it's been great. And the uh, I, yeah, I just want to see it. I mean, I can't I I can't believe that you know they're going to have a 50 tooth cog on the on the cassette on the rear because I mean a 42 tooth already looks huge. It still looks huge. So to go eight more teeth than that, that's got to be that's like a big old pie plate on the rear. But <laughs> I think it's I think it's cool because then you can actually you can go with a larger chain ring up front since you have such a big bailout gear. So I think that'd be a good you know, a good setup for around here in Georgia where, you know, maybe the local trails you want, you know, you want a little more top end, but when you head up to North Georgia and you're grunting up some super steep climbs, like it's nice to have the, the bailout gear. And now you can have the best of both worlds. If you know, you could run a 34 or even a 36 tooth chain ring up front with a 50 out back, you should be, should be able to climb just about anything. Personally, maybe it's just me, but I have a little bit of like new drivetrain fatigue. It's like every year we've got like two or three or four new drivetrains dropping. And <laughs> um, ultimately, I think, you know, the new tech and all the options are really good. But I'm just like, okay, we've got a new 1x12. I can conceive of how this is going to work, you know. Like at some point in the future, I'll probably have a 1x12 on a mountain bike. But I'm just not like excited i don't know why you know maybe i should be excited but i'm just not i mean i think it's good i think it's going to be an awesome product it probably rides amazing um i'm just like there's another drivetrain i'll ride it at some point 
and I'll probably be my go-to drivetrain at some point. This doesn't mean I'm going to change like in the next year, even two years, but down the road, I'll most likely be riding it. So speaking of other products, one that I've heard about is a new wheel set from Stans. They kind of teased that with an invite to their booth at Sea Otter, um, but it looks like the new wheels may already be out. I'm looking at Jensen USA, and they've got the 2016 Stans wheels, and they're touting some kind of Neo hub system. Um, not super descriptive because Neo is just new, right? So it's a new hub system, um, but it'll be interesting to see what that's about. Sounds like it's very different from their current hub setup, um, which a lot of people already like. So that's going to be a cool product to check out. There's also a rumor about a new Fox dropper post. What have you guys heard about that? They've been teasing a dropper post on their Instagram account uh, for a while now, but there was recently, I guess last week maybe, um, Richie Rude, one the Yeti uh, Enduro guy, um, posted a picture of a Fox dropper on his bike, and it looked like it had Kashima coating on it, whereas the first one was black. So mm. um, it'll be interesting to see. I think we're going to see a lot of cool stuff at Sea Otter. Um, I don't want to call anybody out, but um, I definitely know that I've had several invitations to come by and check out new platforms, new bikes, and new components. So you guys definitely keep it tuned to single tracks, and we'll bring you all the fresh goods. I'm stoked to see some new bikes. Like, you know, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of new bike launches. So, yeah, interesting to see what's going to come out. Sure. Good prediction. That's a pretty safe prediction. Yeah. More plus bikes. Plus bikes with 12 speed drivetrains. More plus bikes. And Fox droppers. <laughs> to play it safe there. I want to see maybe somebody else will launch a, another fat bike fork. Yeah. That's one thing that seems to still be missing. I still don't know how RockShox has managed to keep their stranglehold on the fat bike fork market. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed, like it was like a year ago, where I was emailing with RST about a fat bike fork that they were going to be releasing, and then I never saw anything about it. But it was like just in thin the past week, I saw a new prototype shot of an RST Renegade fat bike fork. So. Hmm. Maybe they're finally going to be rolling that out. We'll see. Yeah, they're, the RST stuff always just seems kind of like etherware. You know, it's always <laughs> in some sort of prototype or, you know, almost nearing production phase. Because I've been to, you know, Sea Otter for, I don't know, like five years straight now. And they've always got like something nice looking at their booth, but then you never see it anywhere else. Yeah, lots of exciting stuff from Sea Otter. I'm looking forward to it. So finally, we're going to do a segment called What's Grinding Our Gears and Stoking Our Spokes. It's been a while since we've done this. so Blast from the past. I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about. So, Greg, kick it off for us. So apparently it's been a really long time since we've done this segment because I haven't had a chance to complain about the fact that I tore my ACL. So um, I tore my ACL, but it was like back in mid-January, so that's how long since we uh, have done this segment. But tore a skiing back in January, had surgery on it, and now I'm on the road to recovery. So gears are pretty ground, you know, that I was off the bike for so long, and I'm still not back on the mountain bike. So it's just just not a fun situation. But 
overall it's going as well as it could. But on the flip side, the one thing that is stoking my spokes is just in general, like how easy biking is on the body. While I've had my own bouts with overuse injuries in the past, uh, my two most recent injuries have been a serious like ankle injury and some sort of like tendon tear, um, and now a torn ACL and consequent recovery. But like the first things that I've been able to do with both of those are bike. It's like right now, um, I'm still have like a lot of limits. I can't mountain bike. I can't even walk down a staircase normally, but, um, I can't, can't like walk down the stairs, but I was able to get on the trainer on the bike after two weeks after surgery. And I was pedaling outside within six weeks after surgery and I'm now able to ride the road bike. So, uh, it's just interesting how, you know, even through injuries, biking is, is pretty, pretty easy on a lot of those things, you know, whereas running is going to be a, I don't know, months out into the future for me, but I can still ride bikes. Bikes rule. <laughs> That's right. Bikes rule and runners drool, right? <laughs> Bike or die. What do you got, Aaron? What's grinding my gears is everybody wanting a trophy. We ran a contest recently on single tracks, um, and it's awesome that people want to be involved, but so many of the comments that we get are people want that us to modify the rules to make it easier for them to compete. And they're like, well, if you did it this way and, you know, if you limited it to this, then I would have a chance. And it's like, well, I mean, man, people will bitch about a sunny day. I swear. People are selfish. (laughs) Try to give away a bike. And I mean, which is awesome. Thanks to Scott for hooking that up. But yeah, there's, there's only going to be one winner guys. So (laughs) Sorry. That reminds me of a comment and apologies if this commenter is listening to the podcast and I'm calling you out, but somebody, we, you know, we have this event coming up in April here, um, at Mulberry gap in Georgia. Um, it's called the brutal loop. And so it's a group ride that we're putting on, uh, at Mulberry gap. It's going to be a lot of fun beer and good food and, you know, just an awesome location at Mulberry gap. But, um, you know, we scheduled this for April 23rd, mm-hmm. I believe, which is a Saturday. And Y'all come out. Yes, sign up. Um, but one of the comments somebody posted was that they're, they're like, gosh, why do people keep scheduling stuff on Saturdays? A lot of us have to work on Saturdays. And it's like, yeah, I get that. You know, I'm sorry you have to work on Saturdays, but like there's only seven days in a week. And if we do it on Sunday, then the guys who work on Sunday are going to be mad or the people who go to church on Sunday are going to be mad. And, you know, I wish there was an eighth day of the week, but (laughs) there isn't. And we got to pick a day and rider day. Not everybody is going to get to play. So between Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if we did it on a Wednesday, then nobody would come. Right. It's like, yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is it's not like, we're treating anybody like differently than anybody else. It's like the same standard is applied across the board, like in the contest, like when we choose things, you know, it's not like we're singling anybody out, but yet people still feel that way. It's just interesting. Well, that's, that's kind of a downer. So what's stoking yeah. your spokes? <laughs> yeah. Sorry to bring everybody down. <laughs> we love you guys and we want to give you all bikes, but we just have one. So, you know, try to win it. And if you don't try again later. Yeah. Next time. Next time. Um, so what's stoking my spokes is a fancy bike I've been riding recently. I I got a, a Norco revolver, um, seven, which is their cross country race bike. It's, they actually make a 29er version and a 27.5 and I've got the 27.5 version 
and it is just a blast to ride. Um, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, this Norco, even though it's a straight up cross country bike, you know, 100 mil of travel front and rear, very racy, like steeper angles. Um, while the seat tube angle and head tube angle are definitely cross country, like the fit of the bike is definitely influenced by their trail bike line. Like it's got a really long top tube. Um, they specced it with a nice wide bar and a short for cross country stem. So it's, it's a really cool, I mean, while it's definitely an XC race bike, it's a really cool blend of XC and trail. So I've been really pumped on that. You know, I've spent the majority of the last few years riding, you know, 30 pound trail bikes. And so to get on a 24 pound race bike has been, you know, it's like, feels like my legs have nitrous in them or something. It's pretty cool. (laughs) It's cliche to say that I'm stoked for spring, but I'm really just more stoked about all the events that we've got coming up. You know, I mentioned the brutal loop in April. Um, That's going to be a great ride. And then um, we've also got sea otter coming up, um, which is going to be a lot of fun. And then in May, we're even doing a meetup with the single tracks riders. So um, there's going to be about a dozen of us meeting up in Pisgah for um, several days of riding and shrouping and all that kind of stuff. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Just, yeah, it feels like every weekend there's something awesome coming up. And then it's going to be June and it's going to be hot and I'm going to take some time (laughs) off from riding. So Yeah. Nothing goes on in June around here. It's just too hot. There's no races or anything <laughs> like that. So, anything, anything grinding your gears, or you're just no. You're it's just... all sweet, sweetness and light for me right now. So, yeah. His his spokes can't take no more stoke. Yep. Basically, my gears are very strong right now. <laughs> cool. Well, that's all we have for this episode. Thanks for joining us on the Single Tracks podcast. Talk to you later. Peace.